Hey, good morning, Bethel Church. Uh, Great to join you again uh, this morning and open God's Word together. Uh, Before we do that, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help that we would understand Him uh, by understanding His Word. So let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you are always watching over us. We are thankful that you have left us with your inspired word. Uh, We're thankful, Lord, that it tells us about you. It tells us of your love and your care for us, uh, the grace and the mercy that you have poured out for us. And we're thankful to have the Psalms, Lord, in particular. This was a short series, but we're grateful to have um, just once again an opportunity to get acquainted with the Psalms, how they work. Uh, that they walk with us uh, as we walk with you, and they inform our lives and our hearts. So, uh, Lord, thank you for these things, and I pray that you would help us now as we turn our hearts and minds to your word. Uh, We don't set aside our distractions or worries or concerns. We bring them to you. We bring them to you as we come to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to open out your Bibles, we are uh, in Psalm 146 uh, this morning. As we conclude this uh, series, The Ark of Faith, and just, again, kind of reacquainting ourselves with the Psalms and uh, how they function in the life of the believer. So we'll be in Psalm 146 uh, this morning as we uh, finish up this series. So I wonder if you have ever heard the expression, not always right, but never in doubt. Not always right, but never in doubt. Uh, Of course, this expression describes a person who is a bit overconfident, prideful, uh, a little bit of swagger to them, maybe a little bit arrogant. This is the kind of person who might be misinformed, but they are immovable. And uh, I wonder if you have ever met somebody like this. Hopefully you're not sitting next to them right now. If so, just give them a little elbow. Well, a couple years ago, I was up four-wheeling with a friend of mine, and we were up um, on the Quartz Creek Trail near Mount Prindle, and we were enjoying a beautiful day, and as we were kind of heading up the mountain trail, uh, there was a group of GIs that were coming down the mountain trail. And we stopped to visit a little bit, and uh, we, happened, we asked them if they had seen any uh, sheep while they were up uh, near the mountain, and to which they replied, no, we didn't see any sheep, but we saw some goats. And we kind of smiled and thought, well, no, you didn't. But we gently corrected them. And, and, and see, here's the thing. There are mountain goats in Alaska, of course, uh, but they're not really in the interior, certainly not in the White Mountains. In the White Mountains, we have some small bands of doll sheep, uh, but no mountain goats. And so they, they were misinformed here. And so we gently corrected them. Actually, no, those are, those are doll sheep. Yes, they're, they're both white, but that's kind of where the differences, or that's where the similarities uh, kind of separate out there. Um, they look pretty different, as you can see by these pictures here. So here is a picture of a goat and mountain goat, and here is a picture of a doll sheep. And as you can see, they're pretty different creatures. So we told them, no, no, these are actually um, uh, doll sheep. And there's even a monument there with pictures and descriptions of them right on the trail. But one of the guys stepped forward and said, no, these were not sheep. These were goats. And he was adamant. There was no changing his mind. And so my friend and I kind of looked at each other and smiled and said, you know, 
okay, chief, you know, what, whatever you want. And uh, we're not going to sit here and bang our heads into that rock. And, and uh, we said goodbye and went our separate ways. And he was not correct, but he was not in doubt whatsoever. And I thought, man, I would hate to go into battle with that guy. Anyways, this is just an incident or a story that kind of displays a principle that we find here in our passage, and that's this. That it is not the strength of our faith that matters. Rather, it is the object of our faith that matters. Or to say it another way, misplaced faith is worthless. And our passage today reminds us, blessed is the man whose hope is in the Lord whose faith is anchored in the sure and steady character of God. So let's look at Psalm 146 and and read that together here. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, They return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Well, again, just a beautiful psalm. And I hope you picked, on, picked up on some of the repetition and the themes there. Um, our psalm today is actually taken from a section of the psalms known as the Hallel. And uh, these are sort of the final five psalms of the book, right at the end, uh, Psalms 146 through 150. These are the Hallel psalms because they begin and end with the word Hallel or Hallelujah, Uh, translated for us in English, praise the Lord. And this word, hallelujah, I don't know if you knew this or not, but it's actually a command. It's like an imperative. It is basically saying to the plural audience, you praise God or y'all praise God. It's a command uh, to the assembly to praise the Lord. Uh, The book of Psalms, uh, in the formation that we have it today, actually contains a five-book structure. And uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you kind of look through, uh, kind of thumb through the passages in your Bible, you'll begin to see some of the seams or maybe even this title of, of the books. So book one is, is chapters 1 through 41. Uh, book 2, 42 to, four, to 72. Book 3, 73 to 89, and so on and so forth. And each of these books kind of has a particular theme. Our psalms are arranged around a particular theme. And so in book one, the theme is David as king. In book two, it's Jerusalem as the place of God's presence and reign. 
And book three, kind of the darker part of the Psalms, is it's about the fall of Jerusalem. Book four, these great declarations of trust. And then book five are Psalms of praise. And the book of Psalms was arranged this way after Israel was released from Babylonian captivity. And they and this was in 520 BC. And they, they come back into the land of Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple and they rebuild their liturgy. And so they kind of do these things together. And arranging the Psalms in this five book format was a way to facilitate their worship. And they did it so that it would kind of uh, point to different seasons of their walk with God. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of what's happening there. And one of the reasons that I bring this up is because uh, most scholars uh, believe that the five Hallels that we find at the very end of Psalms, that each one corresponds to one of the five books. So uh, uh, Psalm 146 corresponds to the first book where we normally have Psalms talking about David as king. Psalm 146 talks about kingship and where we put our trust. And anyways, you can kind of see how these final five Psalms uh, pair with the the five different books uh, that we have. Or another way of thinking about it might be this. Um, I don't know if you like classical music. In fact, let's do a little show of hands. How many of you like classical music? Raise your hand. Oh, good. All of you, I see. You all do. That's wonderful. Uh, Anyways, if you're listening to a really good uh, big orchestral piece, uh, there will very often be movements. And, uh, and the composer will sort of put into these different movements key themes that they develop and play with. And then when you get to the final movement of a big orchestral piece, the composer kind of pulls those themes to the end and stitches them together and has this wonderful culmination of the piece of music. Well, the book of Psalms kind of does the same sort of thing. It is the people's way of praising God for each chapter of their life with him. Uh, And so I find that interesting and beautiful and really fascinating. Uh, But you don't have to know that to appreciate the Psalms. They also stand alone themselves and they teach and they instruct. They speak to us. They speak for us as we pray and they connect with us at some of our deepest and most parts. Uh, So our Psalm today, 146, encourages us to trust the Lord and not earthly rulers. Blessed is the man whose hope is in the Lord. And so again, it's not the strength of our faith that matters. What matters is the object of our faith or what what we are trusting in. So let's look over these first few verses. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord. All my life, I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. So the first thing we see here is that the psalmist really makes this personal vow to wholeheartedly praise the Lord. That's our first point. Praise the Lord, my soul. Uh, Once again, the psalm sort of begins in the first person voice, right? It's almost as though he is preaching to himself, I will praise the Lord. Uh, And then the fun part of this opening is that not only does the psalmist preach to himself, but he actually answers himself. 
And as I read it, it just reminds me kind of like uh, being in a black church when you've got the call and response going back and forth. Uh, maybe you've uh, seen this or been a part of it at some time. A pastor gets going, he's on a roll. Congregation is enthusiastic, they're with him, they're spurring him on. And the call and response gets going back and forth. Preach it. Hallelujah. Amen. Come on now. Or my personal favorite when the pastor is struggling and uh, the congregation gets a sense of it. Uh, then very often a dear soul will say something like, help him, help him. Maybe you've been saying that at home as we're trying to preach in front of the camera these days. Uh, but the beginning of the psalm here is almost like this call and response in a black church. But, but the psalmist kind of humorously here has both sides of the interaction. He, he's the preacher and he's the congregation. He's calling himself to wholeheartedly praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. And sort of the call and response happens right here. Uh, also, I think it's worth noting that the phrase, my soul, uh, this does not just mean part of a person, but rather the whole man or the whole woman. Uh, when you and I talk about the soul, we are very commonly referring to the immaterial part of a person, uh, the part of us that lives on after uh, we have bodily death. But the Hebrew concept of soul is different. It's holistic. It's, it's all-encompassing. It's not the inner life as distinct from bodily life. Rather, it is personal, whole life, whole body commitment. And so he means himself personally, but he means his whole self, his physical life, his bodily life, his business life, his married life his social life, his spiritual life, his whole personal life of worship. And so as I said, not only does he preach to himself, but he answers himself. And in his answer, he uses this really wonderful vow-like language. I will praise the Lord. All my life, I will praise the Lord. And again, we, we see this vow language. This is covenant language where the psalmist is committing himself to a course of action despite uh, unseen circumstances. Uh, he doesn't know how his life is going to go, but he commits that his life and his, uh, his disposition of his heart is going to go with the Lord. And so this is vow language. It's covenant language. Uh, and so in the opening, we have this personal commitment, but it is also a lifelong vow. I will praise the Lord all my life. My friends, I want to say to you that you need to have this vow-like commitment to the Lord in your life. You need to have that perspective of your relationship with God. If we only praise God for the times when the days are good and the wind is in our sails and all seems right with the world, then I'll be honest with you, your faith is going to have a short shelf life. We know this same kind of lesson from our marriages. Marriage needs vows to sustain it. 
because there are difficulties in the, our relationship with our spouse. And it's our vows that bridge us over those difficult times to the better days ahead. In other words, if we only stayed married when times were good, the divorce rate would be 100%. And so from marriage, we learn about a life of faith. We learn about vows. Vows keep us married in the days of difficulty. And vows of praise also bridge us to the better days of faith. I remember hearing Chuck Swindoll um, preaching about sort of our perspective of God, his goodness and his involvement in our life. And he said it this way, if you only expect good things from God, you only have half a God. And Amy and I uh, first heard Chuck Swindoll say that 19 years ago. And we were sitting in our car together in Washington State. We had been driving home and Chuck Swindoll came on the radio and we were listening to his message. And as we pulled into our house, we just sat there and let him let it keep going and finish. And we needed to hear those words. Uh, our hearts were breaking at that particular moment. I had just applied for a ministry position that we both really wanted and were excited about and I was declined. And it hurt. Uh, I, felt, um, uh, I felt refused and rejected and it was very painful. And um, it was sort of this moment in life where we were questioning and really disappointed with the Lord. And, and I want to tell you this, it's moments like these where you need vows of praise. That's critical. Because if you're just walking with God for the easy days, if I was just walking with God for the times when I got what I wanted, I would have walked away from God right then and there. And so looking back, I can also say this uh, confidently, I praise God that I did not get what I wanted that day. Because the Lord redirected our paths and directed us up here to Fairbanks, Alaska and to Bethel Church. And for the last 18 years, we've loved serving here. And we pray that God gives us many more years ahead. And so God isn't good and sovereign only when things seem good from our vantage point. God is sovereign and good all the time. He is in control of everything or he's in control of nothing. Uh, I love what um, the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper uh, said about this. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, Mine. Uh, J. Vernon McGee might have even gotten a little bit better. He said it this way. This is God's universe. And God does things His way. And you may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. I like that one. And so the psalmist vows lifelong praise to God, which will bridge him over the day of trouble. And I encourage you to have that same perspective in your praise of the Lord. And then secondly, we see the psalmist, he basically calls the people of God to trust in the Lord, sort of against other uh, uh, objects of trust. In verse 3, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. And I've been thinking throughout the week, why does the psalmist use the word prince or princes? Why, why does he do that? Why doesn't he talk about the king? Uh, the king is the one who's in authority. 
The king is the one who rules. The, the king is the one who has power to make change. So why does the text, why does the psalmist use the word prince? And here's what's going on here. Um, the prince is the one who is next in line. Right? He's the leader who's coming up. He's, he represents the next administration. The prince represents future hope, uh, the future hope of the people. Uh, in other words, maybe the prince will have our back. Maybe the days will get better under his rule. And so the psalmist is giving us a caution here to any and all who are unhappy in the current administration or the current state of affairs, who's looking down the road with an eye to how things might be better, and they're looking to the earthly prince. And so as the sentiment goes, if we could just get the next ruler, that next guy, that next party, that next system, then things can turn in our favor. Then things will be better. But the psalmist confronts that thinking, don't put your hope in the next ruler, in the next regime, in the next administration. The next ruler, the next leader, is just as mortal and flawed as his father. Perhaps in different areas, but he's flawed nonetheless and limited. So the prince is not your future hope. The next administration is not firm ground for you. Uh, now I feel sort of a need to offer a bit of a caveat here. Um, after all, I'm preaching to Alaskans, mostly. I think we've got a few others. Uh, around the world uh, uh, watching on uh, video here. Also, I'll give a little shout out to uh, Chris and Al Martin in Wisconsin. Have some cheese for us. But as Alaskans, we have a particular temperament. We tend to be distrustful, anti-establishment, anti-government, autonomous, independent. Uh, this is our uh, temperament. Don't we sound lovely? Uh, we love our liberty, and we tolerate our leaders most of the time. So there are some, I know, even as I read this verse and, and kind of unpack it here, that, that probably love hearing it and almost wonder, great, can I use this verse to support my uh, anti-government sensibilities? Well, I want to tell you, no, that's not the point of this. When we look at the whole teaching of the scriptures, uh, we're reminded that in Romans 13, that all leaders, even bad leaders, are established by God. Uh, we're reminded in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for our leaders, not because it's in them that we trust, but to pray for them in a sense that they would not get in our way, that we would live peaceful and quiet lives. Uh, we're reminded in 1 Peter 2.17 uh, to love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So earthly rulers are to receive our honor, our earnest prayers, but they don't receive our ultimate trust. Uh, we don't trust in their ability to save. Not the reigning king and not the up-and-coming prince. Not this administration, uh, not the next. There is only one who is the king of kings, and he alone is worthy of our hope and our praise. So God has established earthly rulers, but the message of this psalm to God-fearing people everywhere with regard to earthly leaders is this. Keep your expectations low. That's where they should be. God alone is trustworthy. 
Put your hope in God. Then we move to our third point here. The psalmist kind of makes his his case against earthly rulers in verse 4. And he says, When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. In other words, they're mortal. I was thinking about this, and the story of Joseph uh, came to mind. Uh, You remember Joseph was kind of this uh, arrogant punk kid who was doted on by his father. He uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers because he annoyed them that badly. A lesson to all of you younger brothers out there. But he climbs his way to the top of leadership, even in Egypt, with God's help. And we find that God had uh, providentially ordained this as a famine comes upon the land and his own family retreats to Egypt to find food and safety. Here is Joseph, uh, their brother, who God has placed there, who actually receives them and and provides a home and standing for them. And it just sounds beautiful and wonderful. And we love the closing of the book of Genesis in chapter 50, where Joseph says these very memorable words, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Ah, that's good. Just a wonderful balm for our soul. But then Exodus begins, and in chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, too too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You see, safety and security of one regime is lost in the very next. As soon as the man goes to the grave, his plans go with him. They don't get continued. Uh, And so personally, I I have to say, as I kind of come forward into our own lives and our own moment in time in history, one of my great disappointments with sort of the current political environment in the United States is the way we swing so wide from one party's agenda to the next, one administration's plans to the next. And I think what happens is the general population ends up getting like a values whiplash One administration sets this in place, the next comes along and wipes it all out. And we just back and forth we go. Uh, I think of the word bipartisan. Uh, It seems to me to be a unicorn these days. You know, we've all heard of it. I don't feel like I ever see it. And it gets annoying. And so the caution here is that even the best leader a leader full of conviction and clear thinking and good communication and good, wise compromise, a great cabinet behind them, careful diplomacy, gracious, loving, a true servant of the people, and even with followers, that leader will still die leaving an unfinished agenda behind. And that is the case against earthly leaders. They're mortal. And I think it's interesting that these words were spoken in a time of monarchy. How much more true are they today uh, where we don't have kings who have lifetime appointments, but we have elected officials who have terms? If kings were mortal and therefore not really worthy of a person's ultimate trust, how much more so 
a term-limited appointee. If the reign of kings was short and therefore insufficient for mankind's trust, how much more so in our political system? And we move to our fourth point here. The psalmist makes the case for trusting in God. Uh, Verse 5, this is really the center and the heart of the passage. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Again, this is the anchor, this is the center, this is the thing uh, that the psalmist is trying to get across. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Um, But he doesn't just throw this sentiment out there without any support. He gives evidence and reasons for this particular claim. And we see this in verses 6 through 9. Listen to the beautiful attributes that are laid out here about the Lord. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. What we find here in these In this evidence, this listing of evidence here, we find a compilation of creedal statements. Uh, These same statements are peppered throughout the Psalms and really throughout the scriptures. And these phrases, these descriptions of God are apt and clear and concise. They are statements that have a massive amount of truth packed into just a few words. The maker of heaven and earth, we looked at that just a couple weeks ago. And so these phrases are are almost like fence posts of faith. Uh, They hem us in. They show us the boundaries. They remind us of who God is uh, and who we are in relationship to Him. Uh, These things that are described of the Lord, these are the things we want the King to do. These are the things we want earthly leaders to do. But what we're told here is that it is Yahweh, the King of Kings, who is the one who does these things steadily. Uh, These phrases instruct, they confront, they guide, they inform, they inspire, they push us to keep on in our lives of faith because our God is trustworthy and has proven that over time. And so these creedal statements that are just listed out here are just like anchors for the soul. That's why we want the Psalms to be a regular part of our life, whether they're in our singing worship or in our devotional life or in our disciplined study and reading. The Psalms need to be regularly uh, featured in our life of faith so that we will be rehearsing these truths. I think it's interesting here, we always talk about repetition. Five times the personal name of the Lord is used here, Yahweh. Uh, And His name, Yahweh, means I am. In other words, I exist, I need nothing, I am self-existing, self-sufficient, acting eternally and forever consistent with my own character and nature. Never constrained from outside, always acting consistent with his very self. Uh, Also, what's interesting is the name Yahweh, 
uh, the Lord. You'll see it in your Bible. It's in all caps. And when you see uh, Lord in all caps, that's a reference to the personal name of God, Yahweh. Other times you might see capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, and that's usually a reference to Adonai or an, another, uh, another reference for the Lord. But when it's in all caps, that's his personal name. And we see that that leads the list uh, in several different instances, in five different instances. Uh, it, it's put right in the front of the sentence, which is the place of emphasis. When the author is trying to draw attention to something, they put it in the front of the sentence. In the original language, it's right there. Yahweh, and then it lays out the character. Yahweh, and it lays out the character. And what the psalmist is doing is he is just driving down stakes to make sure that our faith is sure and anchored in the character of God and in his faithful work throughout history. And so again, it is not the strength of our faith that matters. It is the object of our faith that matters. And the psalmist would have us place our faith in God alone. And that brings us to our final point. The psalmist's conclusion, God reigns forever. Yahweh reigns forever. That's what we see here in verse 10. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. In other words, the earthly king may pass and his plans with him. The prince that will come up will be as flawed and short-lived a life as his father. His administration will also crumble. So where do we put our trust? The Lord reigns forever. Your God, Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. So my friends, in what do you place your faith? Where do you find your security and your confidence in life? There are plenty of False uh, sources of security, wealth, government, earthly rulers, bosses, spouses, children, finances, possessions, health, retirement, future plans, career, parents, virtually everything that I just listed has been tested just in the last couple of months. And none of them is enduring and as steadfast and as trustworthy as God himself. What is the object of your faith? Where is your trust really placed? Blessed is the man whose trust, whose hope is in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Uh, that it corrects us, that it deals with our attitudes and our actions, and that it draws us to you. Thank you, Lord, that we know who you are, not just by declaration, but by this beautiful history contained in your holy word, so that we can see your faithful interaction with mankind from the days of old, and we look forward to your return in the days to come. May you find us faithful in the meantime. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.